Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed the Living Proof podcast, as evidenced by the more than 150,000 downloads to date. Thanks to all of you. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening and we look forward to hearing from you. Hi again from Buffalo, where we are all trying to understand how a football team that wins games snuck into our team's uniforms. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. In the second of a two-part podcast, Dr. Jeffrey Edelson returns and continues his discussion about domestic violence in the lives of children. Dr. Edelson begins this conversation by reviewing the findings of longitudinal research regarding the impact of early exposure to violence and risk factors that may influence a person's vulnerability to becoming either a perpetrator or a victim of domestic violence. He then goes on to discuss what he calls a comprehensive community response to children who are exposed to domestic violence and speaks to the role of protective factors in communities and how this may protect families and children from the impacts of domestic violence. After highlighting the comorbidity between domestic violence and the physical abuse of children, Dr. Adelson discusses what's happening in batterer intervention programs and concludes his conversation discussing the differential response and supportive services approach to child welfare services. He contrasts that model with the more traditional and punitive approach delivered in many areas. Jeffrey Edelson, PhD, is professor and the director of research at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work. He's also the director of the Minnesota Center Against Violence and Abuse and one of the world's leading authorities on children exposed to domestic violence. He's published countless articles in 12 books and he possesses many prestigious national appointments, and is a sought-after expert by media outlets for his knowledge of domestic violence. Margaret Coombs, PhD, is a Regional Office Project Associate at the Office of Child and Family Services in Rochester, New York. Dr. Coombs interviewed Dr. Edelson by telephone. What type of relationships, as adults, are they more likely to be victims or perpetrators of violence when they grow up? Two of these longitudinal studies, actually three of them, have spoken to that exact question. Tipper Yates, who was a doctoral student here at the University of Minnesota, used the big longitudinal study set of data that we have at the University of Minnesota it's through the Institute of Child Development to look at families where they've been collecting data. It's now, I believe, almost 35 years they've been collecting data on these families. So they have data. They followed parents and infants. And now these infants are parents of new children. 
and they did find that among these infants that they've studied, that early exposure to violence in the home was highly associated with peer problems, social problems, developmental problems in adolescence and teen years. In particular, I believe one of the findings was in particular boys using aggressive, antisocial, externalized types of behaviors were at much higher risk as teens in using that kind of behavior. The other studies, one of them comes out of the Adverse Child Experiences Study from Southern California, jointly done between researchers there and the, and the CDC. And they, and in another study by Aaron Saft and colleagues, which was another longitudinal study, they found in both of those studies that you were two to three times more likely to be a victim or a perpetrator of domestic violence if you were exposed to violence as a young child. And that doesn't mean that if you're exposed, you're automatically going to become a victim or a perpetrator. I understand the outcome of perpetrator. It just puts you at greater risk probably through modeling and social learning of using that same behavior again. With victims, the way the researchers have explained it to me is that early victimization and in the adverse child experiences study, they found an accumulation of adverse experiences led to a certain level of vulnerability among these people as they grew up. And then you can understand the greater likelihood of becoming a victim if you enter young adulthood as a more vulnerable adult then perpetrators of violence may prey on you more than others. It makes you vulnerable for negative outcomes in later life. And in fact, what they find in the Adverse Child Experiences Study is there are a host of negative outcomes, even health outcomes, that impact people as they have more and more adverse child experiences, what they call ACEs, ACEs, Adverse Child Experiences. As you accumulate those, Uh, you have worse and worse health outcomes in adulthood. And one of those adverse experiences is being exposed to domestic violence as a child. I think Finkelhorst used the term polyvictimization. Yes, David Finkelhorst. And in fact, that national survey that he and his colleagues recently completed showed that children aren't only exposed to domestic violence or child abuse, but that they have multiple exposures to violence as they grow up, and that they are indeed polyvictims, as David Finkelhorn calls I mean, it's a horrible term, but it's the reality for some children. Yeah. I think what we have to realize is that every child probably has multiple exposures to trauma, and in particular to violence, as they grow up, but they have a variety of protective and risk factors, or adverse, you know, as the people at CDC called adverse child experiences that create varied outcomes for them. So if you have fewer adverse experiences and more protective factors, then you do better. A colleague of mine here, Ann Mastin, who's one of the better known researchers on resilience, talks about how she set out to study resilience and she thought she'd be studying the exceptional children, the extraordinary children. But she's decided that it's not extraordinary children, that it's ordinary children, that every day so many children are exposed to traumas or stressors of various kinds, but so many of them bounce back from those experiences because of protective factors in their environments that buffer them 
um, particularly caring adults, that she calls it ordinary magic. It's not extraordinary. It's almost magical because it happens on such a large scale without a lot of formal intervention that there are these naturally occurring protective factors in children's lives that many, many children are resilient in the face of trauma and stress. What we really need to do is support those naturally occurring protective factors like caring adults and try to minimize the risk that children face. And by doing that, we, I think we end up with healthier children through these traumas and stressors that they are exposed to. Wow. And that's so interesting because you often hear of resilient children. Never thought of them as being ordinary, but they are children that just have somebody or something or a community out there somehow that is supporting them. And they're bouncing back. So our kids are doing well. Well, and that's what Ann Maston argues is that it happens on such a large scale that it's not extraordinary, that it's ordinary. She calls it ordinary magic. It was a really, I really liked this article she wrote in 2001 in Science Magazine. We still want to make sure children are safe and families are safe. So can you talk a a little about how communities can protect families and children who experience domestic violence? Or I know you're saying that we can't predict, but can we, how can we intervene? Yeah, and I come back to what I was saying before, that children have varied experiences and varied impacts based on the protective and risk factors in their lives. And therefore, this this group of kids, we need a variety of responses. So my argument would be that a lot of people say, well, let's just make this a form of child maltreatment and report all of these kids to child protection, and child protection will take care of them. And you know you, <laughs> you, know you work in child protection. What's the answer to that? Yeah, it doesn't work. We'd love it to work, and everybody hopes it'll work. In an ideal world, it would work. But child welfare has a very restricted set of resources, uh, more and more scarce as time goes on. And we expect a lot of child welfare. And in fact, many of these children will also be physically abused. So one thing we didn't talk about is the co-occurrence of child exposure to adult domestic violence and then child physical or sexual abuse in the same family. And we find around a 50% co-occurrence. Families where there's domestic violence, you find about half the kids are probably also physically abused in some way and vice versa. So the child welfare system will always be involved with battered women and their children just because of that high level of co-occurrence. And I think the child welfare system needs to think about, and there's been some great work nationally over the last decade, thinking about how child welfare can uh, behave differently and practice differently with families where domestic violence, adult domestic violence is also identified. Probably the major effort in this area is called the Green Book. And that was a it's the color of the cover of a, a best practices guide put out by the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges in 1999. Subsequent to that, the federal government funded six demonstration sites in five states and a national evaluation and national technical assistance around the Green Book. 
And that there is a website called thegreenbook.info, and there's a lot of information about that national initiative. Now, you were involved in that initiative. Yeah, I helped co-author with Susan Schechter of the Green Book uh, on behalf of the National Council. And then I acted as a consultant through the Green Book project, specifically on the national evaluation piece. But what that aimed to do is say, look, we have this co-occurring population, and child welfare needs to make changes in how they respond to battered mothers and their children. Uh, domestic violence services need to make changes in terms of how they identify children exposed to domestic violence and who are abused themselves and how they respond to them and connect with the child welfare system. And the family courts, especially the courts that handle child welfare cases, not the family courts but often the dependency courts, need to identify how they can better uh, coordinate their work with domestic violence and child welfare systems. So there was a lot around how child welfare does a screening, how you uh, develop service plans both for adult victims and separately for perpetrators, what you do around adult safety, not just child safety, but adult safety, and a whole set of recommendations uh, for child welfare. But there were equally a set of recommendations for domestic violence and for the courts uh, to respond to in the Green Book Project. But that's only one element of a community, what I think would be a comprehensive community response. Another piece is really voluntary services in the community where not everybody is being referred to child protection. In fact, I have doubts about whether you should define child exposure to domestic violence as a form of maltreatment because it tends to overwhelm child welfare systems with lots of screening that ends up being closed out and the cases end up being closed out quickly. And those families don't necessarily get more services as a result of the intrusion of screening in their lives. So I would like to see more voluntary services and really a building up of voluntary services that can complement the child welfare system. And I know child welfare wants that too more community resources to draw on. And there are some great models for these around the country, usually called Child Witness to Violence Projects. They vary in the type of work they do. Uh, Betsy McAllister Groves at Boston Medical Center, who's a social worker. Alicia Lieberman and Patricia Van Horn, two psychologists at the University of California at San Francisco, have both developed early child interventions with young children and their mothers, generally their mothers, where they work in pairs with the mother-child dyad and do some long-term trauma work with very young children, try to help them heal from the trauma and do sort of typical trauma work where there's a, talking about the violence, talking about safety and being able to talk for that child to express some things about it or do play or artwork around it with their mother present so they know it, it's not a secret and they can exchange, talk to their mothers or, or hear from their mothers about it. There are groups that many battered women's shelters and other domestic violence services offer for children. And both the early childhood, it's called child parent psychotherapy uh, done by Alicia Lieberman, Patricia Van Horn, and Betsy McAllister Groves, there's some good data to support that it has an impact on children's healing. And then the group work, there's some data on the 
doing groups with children, particularly when mothers are involved. Sandra Graham Berman has done a lot of work on that in what's called the Kids Club, which is a group for a little bit older children. And then Project Support down in uh, Dallas, Texas, Ernest Gerillis and Renee McDonald, two psychologists at Southern Methodist University, have developed a home visiting program where an advocate and a child worker go out together and after a woman and her children have left a shelter, work with them on getting resettled and supporting them through that process of healing. That's called project support. And there's good data supporting the effectiveness of that work. So there are some good evidence-based practices. What I want to say about that, though, is there are many, many other very great, positive, emerging programs, promising practices, whatever you want to call them, that don't yet have data, but this is an emerging field, so I expect more and more of them to come up with data that shows how effective or ineffective they are with children exposed to domestic violence. So I would argue that we really need to develop these set of community-based resources for children exposed to domestic violence in it as complementary to a child welfare response for the more severely abused and the, the directly physically abused children and in support of those children too. And a comprehensive response would be one that includes voluntary and child welfare and teaches first responders like teachers, medical personnel and others how to identify and make intelligent referrals of these children to this array of services that may be available. I mean, I hear that there's a lot of work in what you've described and recommendations made in terms of the disconnect between the courts, child welfare, shelters and services of domestic violence. And and there's all these new programs that are emerging with the child witness to violence and psychotherapy groups and kids club and project support. What's being done for the men, the violent men? Has there been anything that you've seen in your research that's been effective or promising in terms of interventions? Because that seems to be the place that we fall down. That It's interesting that intervention with men who batter is probably the best researched area of everything we've been talking about today. And there's a great deal of controversy about whether it's effective or not. I tend to follow the advice of Edward Gandolf, who's at Indiana University of Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh. And he has conducted one of the largest studies uh, funded by the CDC of batter intervention programs. And generally, he does find that over time, batter intervention programs, if the men stay in them, over time that they do, most of the men do end their violence. And in some studies, we find that they reduce their threats as well through those groups. But those groups alone are not the solution. In addition, we have very little, since we're talking a lot about children today, we have very little around these men's parenting roles with their children. So they've been abusive towards their partner, but maybe not towards their child in some of the cases. Some of them, they've also been abusive towards their child. And the courts often don't know how to respond to that. In fact, I've had judges make rulings and tell me, well, he didn't abuse his children, so he can be a good father to them, even though he was abusing their mother. And to me, that ignores this developmental research that we have that shows that beating a child's mother does have a negative impact on the child's development. So it ignores that. And it 
sort of ignores the need, well, it also ignores the co-occurrence that about 50% of these kids are likely to be physically abused as well, probably by the same perpetrator, but not always. So I think we really need to give some attention in addition to continuing to refine the work of batter intervention programs to think about fatherhood and domestic violence and what we do with men who are violent towards their partners as fathers and often single fathers when they've been divorced from their partner and how they co-parent or parallel parent or what their relationship is with this mom. You know, many battered mothers report that the fathers have undermined their parenting and denigrated them in front of their children, undercut their authority, been inconsistent in implementing consequences in the household and stuff. And and so to become a battered mom as a newly single parent, to become a single parent is difficult, but having been a battered mother and now become a single parent is very difficult. But I have to co-parent with your abuser who may still be manipulating the kids and undermining your parent is especially difficult. And I think there's a room for creative work around fathers and domestic violence. And there is there are some people like Lundy Bancroft up in Massachusetts who's written about and done some great training and speaking on batterers as parents. And there are some wonderful programs that have developed around the country and in North America, in particular one called Caring Dads that's developed by Katrina Scott and Claire Crooks up in Canada. They have a manual that they've developed and they have some evaluation data uh, around the program. And there's a whole website called caringdads.org, I think it is, or .ca for Canada, I'm not sure. Uh, But they've done some great work around fathers who have been abusive to the moms and thinking about not only how does the father become a nonviolent parent, but how does he work with his former victim when they're both still parenting these children. It's great to hear you talk about this because I think it's in New York State we have a whole initiative of locating and engaging fathers. And we've been pushing to have fathers be a part of a child's life. But many of these families come into the system and they're reporting domestic violence. So I'm glad you're saying we can't ignore the abuse and these children are impacted by it, but we've got to find a way to do it. And we've got to work with them in terms of, but we can't ignore the violence. Right. My experience is that very few judges will ever say to a father, you can never have impact with, uh, never have contact with that child again. And even when judges do say that, often the children will have contact with that father, regardless of what the court says. So I think we have to acknowledge that. I do think that there are some violent men who are not safe to have access to their children. And that may be for a period of time or that may be permanently. I think we have to make a decision so who and when can have access to their children. And when they do have access to their children, how can we help them be both a nurturing and supportive parent, a nonviolent parent, but also how can they be a supportive, nurturing, non-abusive co-parent or partner to the former victim. And what does that mean? In Minnesota, we have what's called parenting coordinators. So sometimes parents won't have any contact with each other. The parenting coordinator 
will arrange the custody exchanges, et cetera, without any direct contact between parents. And in some cases, I think that's going to be necessary for the safety of the adult victim and the safety of the children. Just like I think supervised visitation is an important innovation, supervised exchange around domestic violence cases, and that those that we think about those very differently than child abuse cases. What are the safety issues? What are the precautions we need to take? Uh, there is a project called Safe Havens through the Violence Against Women Act that has funded supervised visitation centers to think about domestic violence more carefully and develop protocols around cases involving domestic violence as opposed to child abuse. So I think there's a lot of innovation out there that is yet really evaluated where we can't say it's evidence-based practice, but I think there's some very promising practices developing in a number of these areas. So ongoing assessments, supervised or coached visits, those are still key. Absolutely. And I think that uh, if there is access and we decide that this man should have access, say, through a supervised visitation center, then I don't think it should just be time-based. Like the judge will say, well, three months of supervised visitation, then you can go to unsupervised. It really needs to be behavior-based where you come back to the court in three months and we'll decide whether we extend the supervised visitation or whether we make it less restrictive, but we'll do it based on a clear assessment of progress you've made towards being nonviolent, not only towards this child, but towards the other adult that you're co-parenting. So does he have the capacity to change? Right. Does he have the capacity? Has he taken the steps? And do we have evidence of that before we allow greater access and unrestricted access and unsupervised exchanges, which may endanger not only the children, but the other adult in the family? Just a couple more quick questions. I just wanted to talk to you about the fact that New York State just passed the legislation supporting the Child Protective Services Family Assessment Response, known as FAR here, but also known in other states, your state, as Differential Response which is less adversarial, CPS, and is more partnering with families. Can you talk about this and how is this approach being used with families where there's domestic violence occurring? Does it keep the children safe? I can't answer your last question, but I can certainly talk about what we call alternative response in Minnesota, but is often called differential response. And essentially, that's to take lower-risk cases and divert, I guess I wouldn't say divert them, but create a second channel within child welfare where there are more family supportive assessments and services offered primarily on a voluntary basis compared to more of a forensic investigation where you end up with a finding of child maltreatment or or substantiation and then mandatory services. So this voluntary track, the alternative or differential response, I think is a great innovation within child welfare. It frees up child welfare to get back to the welfare piece and be less of the sort of punitive piece and trying to support families, especially those that are at lower risk. The In Minnesota, the first county was Olmstead County, uh, which is where Rochester, Minnesota is, and that's where it was developed. Rob Sawyer, who at the time was uh, the director of the Children and Family Services in that county, very small county of about 100,000 people, I believe. But he went to his county board and he got f- funding for, I think it was four or five new positions. That was in a county of only 100,000 people, so that was a big commitment, county board to fund a special domestic violence unit that would respond 
so that every case was screened for domestic violence and whether it was in the traditional child welfare or in the differential response, they would come through this special domestic violence unit. And Rob Sawyer and his colleague Susan Lorback have written an article, I think in the Protecting Children Journal, American Humane Association Journal. Uh, they wrote a nice piece that outlines Olmsted County's response to domestic violence via this differential response mechanism. I think Rob ha has told me that about 80% of the children exposed to domestic violence end up in this differential response track compared to the traditional. But some who are both physically abused and exposed to domestic violence end up in the traditional. Both get access to this specialized unit that works on both safety for the abused parent and the abused child or exposed child and uh, works with the perpetrator as well. And I think they also give subcontracts for services around perpetrator intervention as well as support for the mothers to the community-based agencies. So it's a fairly comprehensive response within a child protection system that has differential response in place, but they have a specialized domestic violence unit sort of with, within it's almost a third track, but it overlaps with the other two and really works for safety of the abused adult and child and intervention with the perpetrator. And I think it's a, it's a very nice model. And so differential response, I think, opens up the opportunity to do things like this, but it doesn't automatically respond to domestic violence because there is specialized expertise and thinking and responses that I think we need to do that differential response allows but isn't necessarily automatically going to be in place unless somebody thinks it through carefully. And I think Rob Sawyer and Susan Lorback did that very carefully in Olmsted County. Susan Lorback has just moved to the American Humane Association and, I, and Rob retired and he's a consultant also to the American Humane Association. But again, you're talking about a very specialized a level of knowledge of how they intervene. It really takes a level of expertise. And some places like Massachusetts have hired into the child welfare system what they call domestic violence specialists and place them at regional offices that they place them at to help with domestic violence cases, to train caseworkers around domestic violence, consult on the cases. I believe they've even engaged Fernando Medeiros around the issue of batter intervention. And he's a consultant statewide to help them think how they intervene with these men who have been identified as domestic violence perpetrators as well. So there are some really, as a result of the Green Book uh, project and thinking around d differential response and domestic violence, there's some really creative things that have been done around the country in child welfare systems in thinking about is there an alternative track, a, a way of thinking and responding to cases where not only is the child physically abused or exposed to domestic violence, but where the mother is a victim as well. And how do we work with them. My feeling has always been that if you achieve safety for a mother, you're going to achieve safety for their children much more quickly. Uh, you can't ignore mother safety and hope to achieve safety for a child because that mother is going to be the primary provider of safety for that child. And so when we start to think of a system that responds to the whole family and not just on child safety but family safety, then I think we 
move to systems like differential response and specialized individuals or units that focus on domestic violence. We're all looking for safety, stability, and well-being, whether you're a battered woman's advocate, you're a judge and a family or juvenile dependency court, or a child welfare worker, the language of child welfare applies equally to all those settings of safety, stability, and well-being. And it's not just of children, but it's of adults. And when the adults in the child's life are not safe, that child is not likely to stay safe. So the more we can do to encourage the safety for the primary adult caregiver, who is often a battered mom in the cases we've been talking about, more likely we are to provide safety for that child as well. And in fact, some of the research, Sandy Graham Berman in particular at the University of Michigan, finds that when mothers are engaged in children's healing, the interventions are more effective than when you just work with children. And I think child welfare has always known that, that that's why they focus on moms primarily. Unfortunately, when you focus on the mom and give her a service plan, but don't do much with the perpetrator, you end up leaving the burden of the, the impact of the violence on the mom. Unless we adopt sort of this approach of being supportive, like differential response adopts, of being supportive, providing resources, and really acting as a team with the mom to provide for her safety and her child's safety, and making not just the best interest of the child, but the best interest of all victims in the family, make that our goal. Do you want to make any other comments about any other major state or federal legislative changes that have occurred and how effective they've been? I think a couple of things. The Violence Against Women Act has been reauthorized three times, and it's up for reauthorization, I believe, in this coming year. So it has, over time, expanded to include a, there's an entire title within it, an initiative that comes through, through that title on children exposed to domestic violence. There's another one on engaging men not only in violence prevention, but also around fatherhood issues. So I think there's some really good movement and addressing of children's issues in the Violence Against Women Act, and hopefully that'll get reauthorized and continue to be funded at the level it has been. And then the Attorney General, Eric Holder, the U.S. Attorney General, has a new initiative called the Defending Childhood Initiative. And Eric Holder, even when he was in the Clinton administration as Janet Reno's second-in-command, he was very interested in child exposure to violence in general, not just domestic violence, but children's exposure and its impact. And he's made this a major initiative of his attorney generalship, if that's what you call it, his his time in this role. And the Defending Childhood Initiative is sort of the outgrowth of that. Part of that is the result of this national survey that David Finkelhor has done, and they've just funded eight communities across the country to develop new initiatives on children's exposure to violence, on preventing it. So it is still a major concern. Still a major concern, and I'm happy to say that there's growing attention to it at the federal level. Well, thank you very, very much. This has been informative. It's been helpful. I really appreciate your time today. And thank you, Dr. Edelson. Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to hearing the podcast. You've been listening to Dr. Jeffrey Edelson discuss domestic violence in the lives of children on Living Proof. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. 
For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.